So I did pick one of those tongue twister names for, but it, it, it represents who we are, that we want to be a spark, that, that we're all about. Uh, we, we have these three phrases which says we want to link hearts with African leaders from around the world. And secondly, we say we're changing the world in Jesus' name, one relationship at a time. And the last is that African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That what we do in this world, we can't do it alone. We've got to do it side by side. We're going to change the world in Jesus' name, one relationship at a time. Amen? So I want to share with you one last story. I just came from Kenya uh, had an amazing trip there. There were three other pastors that were with us and a lady named Anita, who is executive director for another ministry that my wife serves on their board called Project 82. And they work among children and widows. And uh, they're just doing an amazing work in that area. And we got to do training of pastors. And one of the young men came along, met us in Nairobi and drove with us up to Nakuru and then on to our, our uh, seminar in the town of Molo. And his name is Bernard, and I want you to, this is Bernard right here, um, Wanyoiki, and he is 27 years old. He's finishing up his um, degree in learning electrical, uh, electrician, he's going to be an electrician, and uh, just a precious young man, and uh, so we were riding together in the front of the van, and uh, he said, you know, Pastor Michael, what, what do you do? And I said, well, I work with African leaders, and I, I love to pour into their lives, and I love to... To, to lead them. And I said, we have these values that we share with, with people. They're intimacy with God, integrity, stewardship, and family priority. These are the four core values that we hold with Catalyst for Africa. If you want to be a part of Catalyst for Africa, these are the non-negotiables. And he goes, oh, I love that. And he reached over and he grabbed my hand and he just held on to my hand for the rest of the way. And that's just part of that African way. If you saw in the video, Eddie was holding my hand or I was holding his hand. I don't know which when I go to Africa now, I do that more than they do that with me, just because it's part of our nature and our culture to hold hands as African brothers in, in the ministry. And so this guy, Bernard, was just a precious, precious brother. And one night, we're sitting around, as you do on short-term mission trips, and, you, and you're playing this game called one-up. I'm going to one-up you. You tell me a story, and I'm going to one-up you. You ever played that? Shake your head like this. You, well, if you hadn't, you need to get into it because it's just like, oh, you know, you ate monkey. Well, I, I ate, you know, whatever. I'm going to one up you. So, of course, it, it degraded into food poisoning. <laughs> and anybody ever here ever been food poisoned? It is not a fun. Claire, go ahead and raise your hand. I won't talk about you, but um, whew, it's rough. And so we're talking about, you know, one time I was in Africa and I drank this orange juice and like eight hours later in the bathroom with a bucket in front of me, you know the story. And it was, I mean, you just want to die. And so we're telling these one-up stories, all the little pastor friends, and Bernard's just sitting there quietly. And he's just kind of on the side, the periphery, and then he goes, that happened to me so many times. And we're like, really, Bernard, why? And then he told us his story. Bernard, at the age of four, youngest of seven, gets into an argument with his mom and dad, and he runs away into the streets of Nairobi. And his parents don't follow to find him. So from the age of four until 15, Bernard was a street kid in Nairobi. He was a glue sniffer. He was a thief. And he just told his little story. Oh, he said, I remember digging through the garbage and finding food and then realizing 
It was bad. And I had the same thing with food poisoning. But there was no parent and no toilet. How we suffered. And we were stunned to think here's a boy that spent almost 10 years of his life, 11 years of his life as a homeless street boy. He said every night you sleep, you would get a a, a sack that would have potatoes and you would climb in that sack just to keep warm. And it's not warm in Kenya, folks. It gets down to the 50s, the 40s in Nairobi. It's high altitude and it is cold. And there are thousands of these street children And yet, one day, when Bernard was 15 years old, a Kenyan man, John Mutai, walks over and says to him, Bernard, God has a great plan for your life. He wants to rescue out of this life. And Bernard gave his heart to Christ, came off the streets, got educated, and now he's an electrician studying. And during our time, we did one of these uh, in 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 our conference with these pastors One of the things that we did in the exercise was we said, tell us the greatest lesson you've learned in ministry. And we opened it up to 30 plus pastors to share one sentence. What's the greatest lesson you've learned in ministry? And to see God take these unbelievably precious, humble, poor pastors and to hear them voice the things that they've learned. And after we got done that day, Bernard said to us that night when we were having our debrief, he said, this has been the greatest day of my life. To see men of God who share their great ministry. And he said, I have hope and vision about what God wants me to do with my life. And I said, Bernard, for the rest of your life, brother, I'm going to stand by your side. I'm not going to be your colonial cash cow. I'm not going to throw money at you. But I want you to know you're not going to walk through this world alone. Amen. And that's what God's called us all to be about. Randall was telling me about foster care. And if I could just give another plug for that, that is critical to what you can do as the body of Christ, to walk alongside these children who virtually have no mother, no father. And for some time frame, you can be that salt and light in their lives. You can pour into them. You can take them from place to place. You can have them in your home for a season. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, that you would reach out to some of these least and lost and neglected kids. Amen? Amen? All right, let's get into the Word, and I promise you I won't keep long because I'm hungry too. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I know you guys are going through the book of Luke right now, right? You guys learning a lot? Yeah? Yeah? You excited? Yeah? Good. Steve, good job. Yeah. So I'm basically taking you to the end of the... The whole book of Luke and launching you into the kind of the last phase, which is Luke's second book, which is the book of Acts. And and we just want to look at this passage briefly and uh, see, I believe God has a word for us today. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days... 
you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now just for a moment? So, God, in these next few moments, as we look at your word, I pray that you would, uh, that you would transform our minds, God, from the way it's been in the past. That maybe we've, we've thought about what we expect ourselves to be and do according to your word. And, God, I'm asking that today you would truly transform our mind in accordance with your word and with your will. And, God, I pray that you would capture our hearts, that you would break our hearts, that you would change our hearts. That we would have your heart for the lost as well as for the found. And that, God, your word would be so penetrating in our lives that we would be the men and women of God that you called us to be. And, God, lastly, I, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That you would put a new passion, a new desire for us to be salt and light in a lost world. God, you're calling us to be your servants, your people. To reach lost people wherever we go. And we trust you now to do that. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So Luke's a doctor. He wrote the whole book of Luke. Gave the whole uh, illustrations. And you're, you're studying his life right now through chapter 7. And it's just an amazing journey of following the life of Jesus. And during this time, Jesus chooses 12 men and a handful of women. And the women don't get a whole lot of press time. Women say, shame on them. Shame on them for that cultural limitation that they didn't, they didn't give women their, their, their just dues in that regard. And I think Mary Magdalene was one of the closest disciples of Jesus throughout his ministry. And yet there's only glimpses of her. And especially my favorite glimpse is that one when Jesus is finally returning on earth after he's been crucified. And the very first person that he sees is Mary Magdalene. And Mary runs to him and says, don't hold on to me. I've not yet returned to my father and your father. That connection with Mary and that sense of, of that she truly was one of his closest disciples is amazing to me. And Jesus has poured into these, these men and, and women. And one third of those men were fishermen. They weren't the sharpest sticks in the bunch. You know what I'm saying? Now, some of you may be fishermen and it doesn't mean that you're dumb it's just in the cultures. Hello. Y'all OK with that? But but in, in the culture where I come from, in Africa and in the Middle East, fishermen, really, they don't read and write. All they do is fish. They know how to mend their nets. They know when to go fish. They go out early in the morning. They go in their boat. They cast their nets. They pull in the nets. They come in. They sell their, their fish. They mend their nets and, and on and on they go. And Jesus chose four of those men as fishermen to be a third of the twelve disciples poured his life into these men, and, and he did amazing things with them. I want to ask you right now, what, what do you think was the, the main purpose for Jesus coming on earth? And I, I want to get beyond the theological that he came to die for our sins, he came to rise again. Why did Jesus come on the earth? This is the time where you answer me. Why did he come on the earth? Show him how to live? What else? Show them how to love. What else? 
To know God, okay, in the flesh, that's great. What else? How to fish for men. I love that. What else? Did he come specifically to lay hands on the sick, cast out demons? Is that why he came? It's a part, okay. What else? Anybody else? To make disciples. Who else? Say it one more. Reveal the Father. Amen. I think all of those are right. I think sometimes we get lost in the sense of that when Jesus came, we get caught up in the, the miracles. We get caught up in the deliverance, that, that he did all these amazing things, that he cast out demons, that he did the miracles of the fish and loaves, that he, that he raised the dead, that he did all those things. But it's amazing if you were just to follow Jesus through like you're doing in Luke, those were just kind of instances that happened along the way in life. You know what I'm saying? He didn't intentionally, I don't think, he didn't come to earth just to do the miracles or to cast out demons. It was that his first and foremost intention was to spend time with a group of men and a few women and pour his life into them and they into him. And that, for me, now maybe I'm off, but I really believe that's the sole purpose why Jesus came. That he could pour his life into a handful of others so that, as it says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, these things that you've been trained in also instill into other people. That, that he was really training them to be all that he's called them to be. And as we look at this passage, and I'll just read through it here. In my former book, Theophilus, as he's talking about the book of Luke that you're going through, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now listen to this on ver- in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. I love the fact that Jesus, when he taught some of his deepest truths was not from a pulpit, was not standing in front of his brothers and sisters, but rather it was sitting down at Chili's, sitting around the table, enjoying food together in the midst of life. And he's giving them one of the most important commands in his last literal days on this earth. And he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, what does that next two words say? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Was there any option there? Hello? When I say hello, you say hi. Hello? There you go, a little African for me, thank you. But he says, go to Jerusalem, wait, John baptized with water, but in a few days... You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And men and women, as I've lived in this life as a Christian since 1972, when I gave my heart to Jesus out on Roswell Road at the old Marietta campground that Randall and I grew up in. When I was 10 years old, I came down to that altar and I knelt down and I I gave my life to Jesus. For these, however many years that is that I've been following Jesus, 42 now, 42 and a half that I've been following Jesus, 
when, when I hear about this, when Jesus says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't get a lot of sermon time or press time in the church. For some reason, whether it's the charismatic part of it, but we tend to avoid that part of what Jesus was really saying. I think in this passage, we tend to look at this passage as a missions passage. We look at Jesus saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But we completely kind of overlook that Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Amen? So I want to ask you this morning, as we, as we plod through this passage, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? I didn't ask you if you speak in tongues. I didn't ask you if you've been slain in the Spirit. It's a simple biblical principle that Jesus talked about, not only in John 15, 16, and 17, but right here in Acts chapter 1. He says, go to Jerusalem, wait. John baptized with water, and in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's a part of who we are as believers. Amen? So let's look a little further. Verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Does that seem like a normal, natural response to what Jesus just said to him? Jesus says to him, men and women, I had a knee replacement about nine weeks ago, so I got to be careful, but I can't just sit down. Um, if I fall, pick me up. Oops. So, Jesus says, here's the commandment. They're sitting around the table, wait in Jerusalem. In a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And their response is, hey, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What, what were they meaning when they said that? Do you know? I'm going to grab my water while you answer me. What, what were they meaning when the disciples, when we ask them, he's given them this command. This is what you have to do. And what do they say? Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What does that mean? Excuse me? Political overthrow. Anybody else? Are y'all just punishing me by just <laughs> Let's make him do like this. What was what were they thinking? They've been living with him for three years. They've seen him do everything you can imagine to to cast out demons, lay hands on the sick. Raise the dead. All those things. He tells them this last command. He's been living with them for 40 days after he's risen again. And he says, this is one of the last commandments. Remember this. Wait in Jerusalem. John baptized with water. In a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they go, hey, Lord, when are we going to kick some Roman booty? Literally, that's what they're saying. In my flesh, I think if I was Jesus, I would have slain them right there. And just started over. They still, honest to goodness, people, they didn't get it. They did not get it. They were still thinking, these Romans have been oppressing us and all of our people. And I mean, they were brutal. Long before they crucified Jesus, they were crucifying a whole lot of their compatriots. You understand how brutal that is? And so they wanted political freedom. They wanted to be set free. They wanted the Israelis to be as they read in the, in the Torah from the Old Testament, that they were God's chosen people, and yet they were under the oppression of Romans. And it didn't change when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And yet he says to them, 
What you really need is the Holy Spirit. So he says to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but, here it is again, the biggest but in the Bible, but you will receive power when, not if, the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen? Enough said. So, my question, church, what is it that we're afraid of? What, what honestly is it that we're afraid of in the church when, when we talk about being filled with power and being witnesses? How many of us really want to be filled with power? Any of you? I mean, honestly, I, I think many of us are kind of scared of that thing. Because we feel like if we get filled with power, we're going to become a, a heretical idiot. Say amen. I, I know you feel that. I know you feel like if power comes upon you, you're going to have to carry a 50-pound Bible and you're going to go pound on doors and share the gospel with people in the name of Jesus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think we really honestly, there's this terror in us that if we get filled with power, we're going to become an idiot. <laughs> a spiritual idiot for Jesus. And, and then he says, be my witnesses. And, and I didn't share this with the first service, but I am with you because we got lots of time. Amen. So the thing that I've found in my own life is that not that I would go around beating people up with the gospel or having some, and nothing against evangelism explosion or the four spiritual laws or carrying a tract with you in your Bible. But men and women, I think people that are pagan are tired of our antics. And they just want us to have relationship with them. They want us to accept them where they are and meet them where they are, not where you are. When I met with those pastors in Molo, I shared one of the greatest life lessons I learned in this ministry was sometimes, you can write this one down, Steve, sometimes it's better to be kind than right. And I stole that from somebody I don't remember. But the reality is, men and women, there are a lot of lost people all around us who are dying for us to give them the gospel. But they don't want it served up as a spiritual idiot. Say amen. They want it done life to life. Listen where they are. Accept them where they are. And bridge into the kingdom in natural ways. So let me tell you my little ways that I've done this all over the globe. The first is, these are three simple questions. You ready for this? The first question is, if you're traveling somewhere in the world, the first question you do to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is say, Hey, what's your name? How about that? That's deep theology. So you're just you're riding on a train somewhere in India or in Guatemala. you got a bunch of girls. Who's going to Guatemala? Let me see the women folk that are going to Guatemala. Y'all are going to win Guatemala to Jesus, right? So you learn in Spanish. Como se llama? Got that? So the first question is simply, you just want to get to know somebody. You're riding on a train. What's your name? My favorite second question, because I'm a person of context. If you, anybody ever done the strength finders? Context is my number one. I want to know history. I want to know your story. I want to know where you come from. My daddy's from Douglasville. My mama's from Mayretta. I'm a pure 
native son of Georgia. And so I want to know where are you from? Where are you from? Because for me, it gives me a bridge so that I can begin to have relationships. So if I say to you, Ellis, is that your last name? Mr. Ellis, where are you from? And sometimes people don't know where they're from. And I say, where did you put your hand in the dirt as a young person? Morrow, Georgia. So I can say to him, Mr. Ellis, when I was a freshman in college, I went and lived in Morrow, Georgia, down there. And I worked with the Salvation Army in South Atlanta. And it was one of the hottest summers of all that. So I have this connection with Morrow, Georgia, even though I don't really know him. And he's like, well, that's cool. At least we have a little bit of connection. If you're from Idaho, you can talk about potatoes. Right? Hello. I know there's more to Idaho than potatoes, but it's just a connection. It's a way that you can connect with somebody in a non-theological way. So what's your name? Where are you from? And then the third question, what would we normally ask? What would be our third question? What do you do? Can I just say to you men and women, I hate that question. Hate it. Do you know why I hate it? Because we... As Americans, we love to categorize people, and we're a dichotomistic, segmented, put them in a box. And if you tell me you're a lawyer and I'm a pastor, why, your stock just went up in at least some people's eyes. Amen? You know the difference between a dead possum and a dead lawyer? Skid marks in front of the possum. Okay, I'm sorry for all the lawyers. If you got lawyers, I apologize. Giving just went down. But that's funny. I don't care who you are. But the reality is, we do do that, don't we? If you tell me what you do and you're economically more powerful, then all of a sudden I feel insecure. And especially as a preacher, that we're just knocking it out of the park financially, we're pretty much down there every time, no matter what your job is. But let me just give you another question. Here's the question that I love. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? Because, you know, I've done this in India. I've done it in England. I've done it in Scotland. I've done it all over the world. I sit down. When I, when I was, whatever I was doing in England, I was doing a Ph.D. research and I came out with a Master's of Theology. And that's another story. But, but every day I would ride the bus and the train and the tube. And it was like God said, speak to one person every day on one of these modes of transportation. And I don't know if you've ever been to England, but they just, they're not real chatty. If you, get, if you get on the tube or the train or the bus, they've got their daily graphic or whatever their magazine is or their book, and they're not talking to anybody. And here's this little extroverted jerk American showing up. And so I get on there, and I'm wanting to talk to people. And, and so I'll just stop them. I'll say, pardon me, I'm not from here, but can I ask you a question? No, sure. Okay. What's your name? Oh, my name's, you know, Tom. Okay, Tom. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Yorkshire. Oh, cool. You know, can I ask you another, one last question? Yeah, yeah, I'm not from here and I'm from America and I'm just curious. You know, one of the things I ask them is, why does there nobody talk to anybody? And they just go, well, you know, I don't know, mate. You know, it's like, you know, whatever. And I'm like, is there anything you're really passionate about? And then he'll just go, man, I love Premier League football. Any of you guys like Premier League football? That's soccer. It's, it's a big deal in England. And it's actually a big deal in the world. But Chelsea just won the Premier League and go Chelsea. So anyway, we just have this conversation. And at the end of the time, I just say, you know, Tom, I just need you to know I'm a follower of Christ. And I just want you to know, uh, is there anything I could pray for you about? 
And he's like, well, you know, there really is. And he would just open up. I mean, it was amazing to me that no matter where I would go or what I would do, I, I would share just those simple questions without... I didn't carry a Bible in my hand or thump them on the head and say, Brother, do you know if you were going to die right now, you're going to go to hell? Boy, that really will get them going. <laughs> Any of you guys come to Christ that way? I hope not. But I just, I just wanted to be friends. I want to share this one story since we got a lot of time. So one day, I'm on the bus, and I, I was living in South Croydon with a Ghanaian family, and I loved every morning I would come down to the bus station, and it was the double-decker bus. And of course, where did I sit? Up top. Why not? And so I get up top, and it's school time, and all these lovely little British children in their uniforms and their coats and their little coat of arms and all that lovely and so I was sitting, it was jam-packed, and I was trying to be incarnational. I had my blue jeans on, I had a black jacket, I had my, uh, what do you call those things? Earbuds in, and I was listening to my, and, and there's a lady sitting across from me, and literally she's reading a book on spirit guides. I'm thinking, do you think this is the person that I need to speak to? <laughs> and the bus is very crowded and very busy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just going, oh. Just give me an opportunity, and kids are coming on and off the bus, and it's like a 20-minute bus ride to the train station. And I'm sitting there wanting to share Christ with this woman, and I just didn't. I missed it. We got to the bus station. Everybody filed off. I went down to the train. I got on the train, took the train into Victoria Station, got off the train, got on the tube, and went to my little school where I did research. And I wrote in my journal when I got to the school, God... Forgive me. I really wish I'd shared Christ with that woman. And I, I, I apologize to you and for missing that opportunity to share you with that person. I spent about five or six hours there at School of Oriental and African Studies, did my research. I got done, got on the tube, went to Victoria Station, got on the train. And as I normally do, I would go to Nero's Coffee. It's Starbucks for England. And I sat down in this little cafe had internet, worked on the internet, and it's about 7 p.m. now. Okay, I started at 7 a.m., was on the bus with this woman, crowded. London's a city of 20, 20 million people. I get done with my internet. I walk to the bus station. There's nobody waiting in line except one person. It was her. I got on the bus, and it was just me and her. I said, pardon me, you don't know me. But I said, we rode in together this morning from South Croydon. And I said, I want you to know God has had you on my heart all day long. And I've been praying for you. I'm a pastor, or I'd say a priest. And I said, I saw you reading this book about spirit guides. And I just want you to know that I have a spirit guide in the Holy Spirit. And he guides me in everything. And then after I got done with that, I just said, what's your name? Where are you from? She had been in Zambia, and I'd been to Zambia, so we had that connection. And I tried to be more than just theological, but I wanted her to know that I cared about her. And I just shared just that little bit. I didn't ask her if she was going to convert to Jesus at that point. I just wanted her to know that in a supernatural moment, God laid her on my heart 12 hours earlier and brought us back together and that she knew somebody cared about her and was reaching out to her. And I didn't share Jesus other than just to express to her some kind of love. I got to my bus station and went off. And she went on into the London night. But I want to tell you something. I tell you that as a story, men and women, that the people you interact with every day here and wherever you are, Ackworth, Hiram, 
Pauling County, Cobb County, wherever this place is that you call Vintage 242, there are people all around you who are dying for you to reach out to them in love and to listen to them. The greatest struggle I have in my relationship with my wife is that when she shares with me struggles, I want to respond and fix it. And she says to me, honey, just listen to me. I get it, but I don't do it. All the men, you need to say amen. Just listen. And I want to tell you something, men and women. We as Christians, we need to bump up against pagan people and stinking just listen to them. And then when the time's right for you to go your own way, you've got two options. You can say, hey, I go to the coolest church in town. I'd love to invite you. I feel like you would feel very warm and invited into this place. Or you could just say, is there anything I can pray with you about? And, and, and I'll tell you, people tend to open up in either regard. Sometimes they don't like the church thing, but they'll say, hey, would you pray for whatever? Uh, one more story and then we'll finish the, the, the text. I'm in Atlanta airport. Here's a great little tool for you. Ready? You're on a train. You're standing there, standing with people that you're face to face with. You can ask them this question. Are you coming or going? And they're going to start telling you, oh, I'm coming back home or I'm going to somewhere. It's a, it's a great question. It's simple. So I'm standing there. I see this woman. I said, are you coming or going? She says to me, I'm just coming from my father's funeral. Do you think it was an opportunity for me to share Jesus and comfort in some way? And I just said to her as we got off the train, oh, I'm so sorry. I lost my dad in 1995. I know exactly in some ways what you're going through. And I'm really sorry. She began to tear up. And I said, I just need you to know I'm a pastor. And I want you to know I'll be praying with you as you're going through your grief. And she just was like, dang, you're my best friend. (laughs) But you understand what I'm saying, men and women? Lost people are longing for you to reach out. Not to condemn them, but just listen to them. Bridge that gap. What's your name? Where are you from? What are you passionate about? Everybody's passionate about something. Anybody passionate about food? Amen. Right now, I'm really passionate about food. Anybody passionate about sports? Ridiculous. What? Bless them. What, food or sports? Yeah. Passionate about young people? Y'all know what Mark Twain said about young people? He said, when they're 13, you put them in a pickle barrel and cut a hole and feed them through the hole. When they're 16, you plug the hole. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, a, it's just a Twainism. It's not true. But the reality is, men and women, people are lost. And they're longing for us to reach them with the gospel. So let's get back to our scripture. Jesus says to them, go to Jerusalem. Wait. In a few moments, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But, God, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to kill the Romans? When are you going to do what you said you were going to do? We thought you were the Messiah that was going to slay the political power of Romans and set us free as a people of Israel to be who we were, the people of God. And yet, God brought them together in Acts 2, right? And the Holy Spirit came upon all of them and they began to speak in Every known tongue of every person that had come to Jerusalem because Jesus was confirming in the world that he came not just for the people of Israel, but for the whole world. Amen. So are you afraid of the power 
Are you afraid to be a witness? I want to encourage you today. God wants to set you free to be his witness. I say this every time. How many extroverts are in the crowd? Let me see your hands. See all the hands that just rapidly go up, extroverts. I used to ask how many introverts and nobody would raise their hand. (laughs) True. But the reality is, introverts are great at reaching introverts. Say, say amen quietly, introverts. Because that's, that's how, you know how they tick. You know how they relate. Extroverts, man, they want it loud and proud. They want to just engage. They want to knock you over. They want to, you know, have a fight. They want to have fun. They want to, and introverts are going, whoa, back off, man. You know, let's go get in a quiet room and let's just sit and talk and come on. But the reality is, men and women, If you saw the hands that went up, there are only about ten extroverts in the room. And I think God has a purpose in that. That that introverts really are great at reaching introverts. But nobody's ever given you permission. You've made an excuse in your own spiritual belonging that because you're an introvert, you're not to win people to Christ. God, have mercy on us, men and women. Young people. God wants to use you to reach your young people. You go to a pagan public high school. You know how many lost people there are around you? And they're just longing for you to just be real with them. Listen to them. Pray for them. Man, my nickname at Marietta High School, my name is Michael Mosley. And my nickname at Marietta High School 40 years ago was Moses. Why? Because I believed in Jesus. I was uncompromising in my Walk with Jesus. And so the black community, as well as the white community, they saw me as a Christian and they nicknamed me Moses. May I see my stick, please? Now for my stick. So I'm in Mozambique, South East Africa. My brother is a missionary with Heidi Baker of Iris Ministries. And I get to spend a week with them in Pimba, Mozambique. And my brother's very close to Heidi and Roland Baker, and we're having our time, and it's our last time together. And Heidi presents me with this gift, and when she does, it's an ebony walking cane. Never did I know that I was going to have a knee replacement, and it was going to be my crutch. But she gave me a, a Moses prophecy over my life, saying, Michael, I believe God's going to use you to set thousands free. Go and obey. Do what he's called you to do. That was my Nickname in high school. I, I wonder what your nickname is in the kingdom. God wants to use you to reach lost people. Are you afraid? Do you understand what Jesus was saying? You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it comes not with weakness. It comes with power. Sweet power. Not obnoxious power, not jerk power. It comes with power that comes from the kingdom of God where we love people, where we listen to people, where we bridge gaps with people, where we pour into people. And out of that, we'll see the kingdom come. And you will become his witness in Jerusalem, right here where you are, in, Ju- in Judea, in the counties, surrounding counties, in the Samarias, as we talked about foster care and prostitutes and unwed mothers and orphan children. And maybe some of you, God's called into the far-flung fields of foreign service. My question is, church, when are we going to just listen to what Jesus is saying? Not just listen, but when are we going to obey? He wasn't just saying this for these 12. 
He was saying it for us this morning right now. In a little while, wait in Jerusalem. John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But God, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's not for you to know the time or the date. But, Acts 1.8, but, biggest but in the Bible, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. Pray with me now. So God in heaven, uh, your word is alive. Your word tells us that your word is alive. Sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder to the joints and marrow to the very discerning of our thoughts. You know every man and woman and young person in this room this morning, now this afternoon. And God, you know our hearts. You know what you, you want to do in us and through us. And I, I'm praying right now, God, that, that truly you would speak to us in our deepest recesses. That we would, we would no longer make excuses. We'd no longer believe the lies that we're not capable or able to be your witness. And that, God, we would take the, the sheer fear... Of saying, God, I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to be your witness. Whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert. No more excuses. I want to be yours. So I want to ask you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If, if you've made a commitment to Jesus. If you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're a follower of Jesus. That you just simply raise your hand as a testimony. I'm a follower of Jesus. Just put it up and put it down. 